This is episode 201 of the Church Venture Northwest podcast. We're continuing Men's Roundup 2017 with John Lynch. This is session three from Saturday night. Good evening, my brothers. serve that on a tweezer, I'm telling you. Man, gosh, that was good. Thank you. Woo! Man. Hey, by the way, I watched you guys out there doing that race. I am not a man. Man. I actually asked my friends, if I was to do that, would I be finished by Roundup? Would I, would I have a miner's helmet to still be out there? And I said, no, you would not be able to finish it. Hey, guys, about three years ago, a president of True Face, Bruce McNichol, co-author, he said, let's get on a plane. We're supposed to go up to Seattle. There's these guys making this movie. And I read the script, and it looked like it would either be one of the most incredible films made for such a genre or it would be one of the hokiest films ever. And so we went up there, we spoke for about an hour on sexual brokenness and grace and identity and and how God can work uh, in authentic ways to heal us in sexual brokenness. Turns out these guys made an incredible film based on the prodigal son and then bringing in people like Dr. Dan Allender and Paul Young from the shack and 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 I get to be in it and I am blown away I do not know of anything anywhere that has been produced that instead of a buck up response to sexual sin uh, gives identity in Christ gives the love of the father and gives grace it is astonishing. It's going to be one night playing in theaters across um, America, like 700 different uh, cities. And it'll be in Portland. It'll be, in, I think, in Eugene and some other areas around. But I wanted to give you a, a, just a short trailer just to give you a sense of it. It's going to be this Thursday night, one night only. Then it'll go to Netflix and it'll go to rentals and there'll be a study guide with it. But just one night, if you know of anybody, bring all I cannot think of anyone who would not benefit and be blown away by getting to see what these young filmmakers have done. It rocks me to see what they've done. So this Thursday night, 7 o'clock, call. You can go online, The Heart of Man movie dot com and uh, go see this film so anyways here's the trailer for it 
many of us are still trying to prove that we are enough by the very law that tried to prove to us that we're not enough. When he calls us a saint, he makes an incredible statement about us. We are no longer defined by being a sinner.
verses 24 through 26, and I was getting ready to preach it, and then I had a stroke. And so three days later was when I would be preaching, and I had to go to my pastor, Sam Hill, and to my son, Caleb, and they said, hey, why don't you just sit down with us, Pops, and let's see how you are before you preach it, see if you can talk. And so I had to go through it with them, and they let me preach it. So three days later, I got to preach this message at my home church. And it was, um, after that, I was all done. I was ready to say, God, I'm, I'm ready to done, be done preaching, because that was a beautiful, beautiful moment for my life. So anyways, this is that passage. And I love it because it, in the Old Testament, way back with Solomon, he understands the secret to how to live this life beautifully. So I hope I can do it justice tonight. Uh, if you have your Bibles, um, or if you're reading on your phone, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And it's what's stunning is if, if, if you read this book, it's like there's this tapestry and all these jangled threads and ugly, weird, distorted colors like there are any beautiful tapestry underneath. And then if you get on top, you see the... You see the beautiful finish work. But most of the time in this book, Solomon's underneath with these jangled threads and he's yelling out, I don't get it! It makes no sense to me! It's stupid! I watched this happen! And then every now and then he gets on top and he sees life. This is one of those passages. It's the... Um, throughout... This book so far, you've only heard God mentioned one time. Now in through here in chapter 3, you'll hear God talked about 11 times. Solomon will finally give perspective from above the sun. He's on top of the tapestry. You know what's interesting? I used to preach this that he was stunned looking at it. But I think he looks at it begrudgingly. I think it's so frustrating. Solomon said, God, I'm going to put you over here. I'm going to not let you deal with my life. I'm going to see what I can find under the sun. And then he begrudgingly has to say, it was you all along, wasn't it? You're the only way I can make sense of this life. So, I'm sorry, guys. Go ahead and put that slide back up again. Let's read it. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too I see is from the hand of God. For without Him who can eat and who can find enjoyment. To the person who pleases Him, God gives wisdom and knowledge and happiness. But to the sinner, He gives the task of gathering, storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. Now, this too is meaningless chasing after the wind. Can you give me that next slide? We can spend our lives manipulating circumstances to get what we think we deserve or have been denied, or we can receive the life he wants to surprise us with as a gift from his hand. I want to give an extended paragraph because at least in the NASB, which is what I use it can seem a little stiff and wooden and confusing. So I want to give this paraphrase of verse 24 and then 25 and then 26. 
I would say it this way. There is nothing better for a man or woman to be able to savor fully food and drink and every child's soccer game, every concert, every movie or bike ride, and to be able at the end of the day to tell himself that what he has been working at and towards and every committed relationship of love has been worthwhile. And then verse 25, the ability to see life this way can only, only come from the hand of God. And then I would paraphrase the rest of that, verse 25, make no, no mistake, any evil or non-believing person can have the rush of pleasure for a period of time. Money, power, fame, and authority can bring you to the most beautiful places in the world and the coolest events on the planet. But who can have enjoyment without him at the center of it? So, the ability to enjoy anything has very little relationship to the thing itself. If I get that, I start to get this secret. The ability to enjoy... Where did it go? Thank you. The ability to enjoy anything has very little relationship to the thing itself. Oh, how long that took me to get that. Nothing innate in any person or object or event that can guarantee me a response of joy. There's nothing under the sun, Solomon says, that has that capacity. I hate to say. And then there's one other truth. Nothing inside of me can enable me to keep enjoying the things I do or the things I have. I do not have the capacity to maintain the same level of enjoyment in anything I do. I can only see with new eyes once. From then on, there's a steady devolvement of appreciation or reflection. On vacation this summer, um, some friends of ours... Uh, the wife has leukemia, precious couple, and so they said, would you go, instead of us with you, would you go by yourselves to St. Lucia? So we got to go to St. Lucia, and it was incredible. I'd never been any place like it. It's so unlike New Jersey. <laughs> and in the first night, we sat at this table. There's beautiful sounds of creatures in the jungle and we are looking out into this bay and this across to this town with shimmering lights and those swaying palm trees that are leaning over halfway to the ground and we are at this table and there's this pier that juts out this way and I'm with my wife and she is beautiful and we are sitting at a table and it's just dusk and I think I will never leave here. I will, I will have food and drink brought. I will stay at this table for the rest of my life. This is unbelievable. Honey, are you seeing what I'm seeing? And then we went back the next night, and it was awesome. And the next night after that, it was fine. The third night, eh. The rest of the week, I never went back there. Isn't that crazy? How quickly that happens to us. 
It's a stunning reality for me. So, next slide. Only God has the power to make an event enjoyable. There's nothing I can drum up. Guys, I could go to my favorite ball game with my favorite friends. I can't guarantee it's all from God. Anytime I experience anything, any enjoyment, he has personally designed it for me from before the world began. He said, that's my boy Lynch. And I am going to work this thing. I've got it so figured out. Boom. I know exactly when and exactly where. And I'm going to give him this gift that he never knew was coming. When I'm convinced that I can't pull it off or make it happen, if I understand God's the only one who can pull it and is willing to do it for me, do you know what it does? It starts to increase the frequency of my enjoyment. The moment um, you invite Jesus into his own event and make it an occasion to enjoy him, that event suddenly has a chance to be stunningly supernatural. For you have the opportunity only now to step into the wonder that he's been doing as you have been going it alone. The morning after I came home from the hospital and I'm working on this message and I've got Pandora on and I've got Jackson Brown playing and a few others and I am just loving it and I'm understanding insights of what God's doing to me and new perspectives he's given. And I, at one point I'm dancing in the living room and I'm just, I'm thinking, Lynch, you are, you are on your game. You are coming up with such good music. I am so proud of you, my man. And then I come to this passage and I realize, oh no, that's right. Oh my God, you know exactly what I like. You know exactly how to bring it all together. You did this. My God, you did this. And then right there in the living room, I got to give accurate credit and worship to why I was so full of joy. I said, I'm sorry, God. I, I missed it again. It's not just that he perfectly designs a Light my heart, but he gives me the childlike ability to enjoy it to the fullest. So contentment is the conviction that everything I need for a great life is already inside me. Contentment is not pretending that I don't have preferences or that I don't like certain things more than others or that I'd rather have less or enjoy generic as much as name brand or that I'd just as soon stay at the Budgetel as the Disneyland Grand Californian or that I must be stoically self-resigned or that I must not have aspirations or well-thought-out goals. It's just this. I learned to not confuse wants with needs. I don't pursue preferences with the same passion as I pursue his purposes. I don't pursue pleasure nearly as much as I enjoy his intimacy. I don't daydream what could be as much as staying present in what is. I don't dwell on what I deserve but on the love I don't deserve. 
And I don't interpret less as an indication of his displeasure or more as an indication of his pleasure. Somebody wrote it, and I don't know when, but a long time ago I remember reading this statement. If you have to move even one inch to be content, you never will be. Those who seek more stuff and dwell on it and pout when they don't have it and envy those who do and arrange all their environment and dwell on it and manipulate their world to get it, they enjoy at least when they do get it. And those who seek status and position and sacrifice priorities of family, God, and heart to get it, they enjoy at least when they get it. There's this remarkable secret to life. And way, way back in the Old Testament, Solomon sees it. He doesn't know what to do with it yet, but he sees it. There's this remarkable secret to life. Enjoy and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in you. And a quality of life beyond what you knew to ask for will come around in one form or another better than what you could have designed in your limited imagination and perspective. Oh, uh, there's one stipulation, though. If you want to live this way, you'll have less control over the exact specifications of what you get. You know what, though? It won't matter. Experiencing God's pleasure in a Motel 8 is superior to the sense of God's absence in a hotel where you get a mint on your bed. I want to say that again. Experiencing God's pleasure in a Motel 8 is superior to the sense of God's absence in a hotel where you get a mint on your bed. Amen? Amen. Oh, and I know what you're thinking. So what if I could have God's pleasure his delight, and a mint on the bed. Shouldn't I pursue that? No. Enjoy God and make choices when they're given which display your taste and preference. Next slide. But if you pursue the mint on the bed, it may not taste as good as you had hoped. And if you trust God with you, you will at some time find yourself in a place where you get a mint on your bed. And it'll taste really, really good. Oh, and, and you'll receive the added delight of knowing its goodness came not from the mint, but from the very hand of God. Oh, and if you choose to delight in him those times without the mint on the bed, they'll often be the ones you'll remember and cherish for the rest of your life. So, let me give a paraphrase then of verse 26. Those who trust God with themselves are given wisdom, enjoyment, and everything else of value as a gift on an ongoing basis from their God. Slide. Joy and wisdom are given as gifts to the humble. It's why information is plentiful, but wisdom and joy are not. It's why our churches sometimes are filled with information givers, but they don't get wisdom. And they don't seem to get joy. Because one you can get without any humility, without any trust, and it's plentiful. Yap, yap, yap. I, the telephone solicitor can give me information. But wisdom, that takes trust. 
Now, it's interesting, in Brown, Driver, and Briggs, the, the, the Greek language study, it says the word good um, is pleasing. It's the word pleasing when it's describing people. And so he says, um, for the person who is pleasing in sight. Who's pleasing in God's sight? Ah, there it is, Hebrews 11.6 again. Without faith, without trust, it is impossible to please him. Only those who trust him with themselves please him, period. Not those who get it more right, those who, who look good on the surface, those who can keep their behaviors right. No, those who trust me please me, he says. Without faith, it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. It's a belief that he's there and that all in life comes from his hand. Pain, sorrow, grief, disappointment, as well as joy and happiness, they're all a gift from his hand. And he makes no mistake, and he never plays us, he never says, oops. When we see life this way, we no longer try to live in denial of all pain and fear and grief, etc. Every element of life can have its measure of joy, even sorrow and pain and grief. I, I, I love that, what Jason was saying earlier, Jason Gray. Romans 8.28, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Not all things are good. Some things are horribly, tragically evil, but he causes all things things. I don't know how he does it. But he causes all things, even the hideous, frightening, freaked out, stupid, chronic things. Because he's God, he eventually causes them to work to work out better than if they had never happened. What kind of God is that? How powerful, how good, how glorious, how beautiful, how sacred is that God. He knows he will not make a mistake and he will not play you. So God rewards the trustingly self-forgetful with the very delights that they choose to not strive for. Isn't it strange the more you run after life, panning after every pleasure, the less you'll find, but the more you take life as a gift from God's hand, responding in thankful gratitude for the delight of the moment, the more life seems to come to you. So, when we give up striving and trust Him to supply whatever we need for a wonderful life, we get free. We no longer clutching or striving or, or trying so hard to get what we're supposed to deserve. And instead, we are freed to love and be loved. God is perfect. I love what Ephesians 3 says. God, it's so powerful to me. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that you can even think or ask. I don't even have the capacity to think of the goodness he's got for me. According to the power that works within us, to him be all the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen.
so then it all changes. It all turns around. It all starts to play differently and I get to start to do different things and I get to start to live different ways. And guys, when I capture this secret of life, I start to live for the success of those who are given, I am given to love. I start to get to pay attention to your success, not just mine. I get to live for sweet and playful intimacy with Jesus. I get to laugh with him and enjoy him and rest in him and be unhurried with him and take him into every single thing that I do and enjoy it with him. I get to live for worship and sincerity and childlike awe. Like tonight, I looked around and I watched you guys and your arms are up and you don't care what anybody else in the room's doing. Get to live for unhurried, fragile vulnerability with friends. I miss this man so much. I haven't seen him in a while and he's moved up to Portland. I hate you all for that. But to get to see him and laugh with him and talk with him again. To shamelessly revel in each moment as his perfect will. And to live for the redemption of those who don't yet know God. And to live for the protection of those who cannot defend themselves. That's what free people get to do. Guys, that's what we get to do if we get free. Now listen, some of you tonight, you don't know him yet. Somebody invited you here or you've been coming to these things, but you've never put your hope in Christ. And all this stuff that we've been talking about, it still seems so far out there. Because guys, it, um, Christianity, faith in Christ is not just something you, you get by going to enough church long enough. It's, it's, there is a point where, where death comes to life and light comes from dark. There's a moment in there where something supernatural has to happen. I love what is said in 2 Corinthians 5 when, when he says, um, He, God, made him Jesus who had never known any sin. Imagine that. Jesus had never even tasted sin. He, God, made him Jesus, who had never known any sin, to actually become my sin. Not know about my sin, not take care of my sin, but to actually become my sin. And not just my sin, but your sin and everybody else's all the way through history. It all fell onto him. I don't get that. Sir Francis Drake's sin. Everybody's sin. He, God, made him Jesus who'd never known any sin to actually become our sin. In a moment's time. And in a moment's time, the moment somebody puts their hope in Christ... He, God, made him Jesus who knew no sin to actually become my sin so that I would become 
the moment I trust Jesus, the, the righteousness of Christ in him, that I would become Christ in me. You can't tell where he leaves off and I begin Christ in me on me worst day. I don't care what you've done. I don't care. Don't play cheap religion with me. I know sin. I've done big league sin. And he says, John, there's nobody I've ever loved more. To the exact degree that my father loves me, so also I love you. And by the way, the moment you come to trust him, you become actually fused with Jesus Christ, righteous. Not a safe sinner, but a saint who still fails sometimes. Amen. How can it be? How can it be that this could happen to us? I talk about it in the two roads talk. Could the shed blood of Jesus be this powerful? That for those of us who dare put our hopes in him, he's never on the other side of our sin. Ever. Instead, he walks all the way around that sin and he walks all the way up to me and stands 18 inches away from my face and he smiles that smile that no other human being can smile. And he looks into my eyes and he puts his hands on my shoulders and he says, I know, kid. I've known from before the world began. I've seen what's coming. I know what's going on. And I'm not ashamed. I'm not mad. I'm not disgusted. I'm crazy about you. I, I love you so much. And then he, he would pull me into a bear hug. So tight. So tight. Tight, he would keep saying, I know, I know, I know. So tight, I would say, no, 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 you've got the wrong don't Stop, please, don't. And he keeps saying, I know, kid, I know. From before the world began, I've known and I'm not ashamed. I'm not disgusted, I'm not angry, I'm crazy about you. And I want him to stop, I don't. I want him to do this, but after a while, it feels I've waited all my life to experience this. And now suddenly I don't ever want him to stop holding me. And he keeps holding me so long and keeps whispering into my ear, I know. I know. I'm not ashamed. I'm not disgusted. I'm crazy about you. And he keeps holding me until he's absolutely con convinced that I believe him. And then, and only then, does he release his grip. And then only so much so that he could put his arm around me. I think I've given that part of that talk maybe 700 times in my life. And every time, I always I do the same thing. I see my sin over there. I see Jesus holding me with his arm around me, and I imagine him saying, 
wow, uh, my, 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 that is a lot of sin. <laughs> wow, don't you ever sleep? And then he would say, and I've got you, kid. I've had you from before the world began. We will deal with this together. Um, so tonight, in a moment, my friend Mark is going to come up and he's going to talk to us about this Jesus. All I want to do is read to you my experience. Because all I want you to know is that this stuff is not for the this stuff is not for the people who grew up in it. Yes, they can have it. But it's for us, the outlaws, and the losers, and the goofed up ones, and the ones who never wanted to set their foot inside a church. This Jesus is for us. Amen. And so this one who used to use swear names with his name attached, he wore me down and he waited me out and he said, I love that one so much. I will get him. And so this happened to me. December 23rd, 1979. I'm, uh, I'm lacing up my new balance 620s. I recently started running. I stopped smoking three days ago. Suddenly, conversation with God starts with one inaudible but loudly perceived word. Now. It is my impetus to move forward. I have no idea into what. I only know it's time to tell God what I now believe. In the last few weeks, I've thought about where it would happen. The moment I'd tell him that I'm all in. Should I go to a church maybe? I, maybe I'd go up on Camelback Mountain and shout it into the night air. And, and now the moment has come and I'm sitting on a thrift store mattress in this dingy, bare, lonely guest house which floods every time it rains. It's the perfect place to represent the end of things. The end of my running from him, the end of self-protection, the, the end of self-destruction, the end of fear, the pretending to be the victim of what I have mostly caused. And so I say, God, it's John. I'm so sorry. It has taken me so long and you've had to watch me go into so many strange and sad places. I want to do this right. I want it to take. Today, finally, no part of me is holding out. I have no other game plan. And I am totally destroyed if you will not have me. I want you to be my God. I believe you stayed on that cross for me, John Lynch. And somehow what you did was enough to make me clean if I believe it. So today I believe it. Forgive me now, Jesus, for everything. It feels so wrong to ask you this, but you say that what you want me to do is ask. I believe you were put on a cross and you allowed it for me. You died for all my sedition, all my selfishness, all my rebellion, all my sickness. And yes, 
I finally now believe that you were raised from the dead. I don't know what else to say except this. Why would you do this for me? Why would you let me care? Why would you accept me after all I've done against you? I don't want to become someone fake or pretend, but I'll go anywhere and I will do anything you want me to do now. All I know is I want you, Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, wherever you are, you're the only one I want, no one else. I am calling out loud for everyone in the universe to hear. This is John Lynch. And I wrote, it probably wasn't that eloquent or as well thought through. It was probably only a few sentences, but that's the best I can remember it. And I have Jesus writing. John, pretty much that's how I remember it also. So tonight's your time. For me, it was um, 6.30 in the morning, December 23rd, and I couldn't run anymore. I was too tired. And I knew he loved me, and I was ready to let him in. I was willing and ready and desperate for his death on the cross to be for me. And now it may be your turn. It would be an honor to stand with you.